0: Time your podcast on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides, suspicious deaths, and other topics of interest to our audience. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co host is Delilah Jones of Imagine Publicity. Hi, Delilah.
1: Good morning, good morning, and, and welcome everyone to another episode of CrimeWire. I just want to say that the Inside Lens Network has been around for a very, very long time, and we have over 700 episodes on all different types of topics. So please, you know, look us up um, on on Apple, iTunes, and any of the other podcast directories. We're there. Um, And I just want to say that some of the podcasts on the Inside Lens Network, we're going to highlight criminal cases, some of which are still open investigations. Our intent is to allow guests to present information for consideration by listeners. Our podcasts and hosts in no way represent our guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. So our guests present their own information, and while we might suggest some resources and assistance uh, we're not liable for what they do with it so I think you're going to find that this is another very very interesting um, episode for the podcast with uh, the case of Molly Bish
0: thank you Delilah and that's uh, let's get right into it here On June 27, 2000, then 16-year-old Molly Bish went to work on her new job as a lifeguard at Commons Pond in Warren, Massachusetts. She disappeared that morning, and the search for her was the largest in Massachusetts state history. Three years later, Molly's body was found in the woods and recovered by the Massachusetts State Police. Her kidnapping and murder remain unsolved. And today we're joined by Dr. Sarah Stein and John Drowick, co-authors of the new book Who Took Molly Bish? Sarah Stein is a consultant and co-founder of the Center for the Resolution of Unresolved Crime. She was awarded her Ph.D. in criminal justice in 2012. Her dissertation was entitled The Cultural Complex of Innocence, An Examination of the Social and Media Construction of Missing White Women Syndrome. She received her Master's in Forensic Science with a concentration in Advanced Investigation and a Certificate in Computer Forensics in 2007, And her bachelor's in 2004 was a self-designed major entitled The Victimology of Pedophilia. She has consulted for numerous families and law enforcement agencies regarding unsolved crimes and has taught at three universities in Georgia and Massachusetts. She has also co-authored two texts on cold case and published several articles related to the topic. Her two most recent literary contributions have been a chapter, Politics of Murder and the challenges of cold cases in the text entitled Survivors, shocking two stories about America's pursuit of police transparency and justice, uh, which I'm familiar with, uh, compiled by the Transparency Project. And a chapter, Criminals, the shadow bearers of society and map of the soul, shadow our hidden self. She has also recently published the first volume in her series, When Criminal Justice Failed, who took Molly Bish, which explores the shortcomings of the criminal justice system through Molly's case, which Sarah consulted on pro bono for nearly 15 years. John Grawick has been a Massachusetts attorney for over 20 years. He's a retired detective lieutenant for the Massachusetts State Police, where he was a supervisor in crime scene response and an internal affairs investigator. John also was assigned as an instructor in Law is a member of the Massachusetts State Police Academy. After retiring from the State Police, John worked as the Director of Forensic Sciences at Western New England University, where he developed the forensic biology and forensic chemistry majors through curriculum development and increased laboratory sessions within each major. John left academia in 2019 and was bestowed the title of Professor Emeritus upon his retirement. During his duties with the state police and the university, John received advanced training in all aspects of forensic science disciplines and has completed basic and advanced training in homicide investigation, blood stain pattern reconstruction, friction, ridge skin classification and identification, and footwear examination. He has testified numerous times as a forensic expert and investigator in many death cases, including high profile homicides. John continues to consult for law enforcement agencies In Unresolved Cases and Forensic Evidence Analysis. Sarah and John, welcome to CrimeWire.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much, Jenny and Delilah, for having us. We're so happy to be here.
0: Well, it's our pleasure, and uh, uh, what I'd like to do, I I think, uh, to start off with, why don't, and either one of you can go here, and you can uh, go back and forth with whoever Uh, wants to address any any particular issue or topic. But why don't we begin uh, with talking about the Molly Bish case. I just gave a brief introduction, but you guys are certainly uh, familiar with the case, so why don't we kick it off that way?
2: Sure, of course. So Molly was the youngest child of John and Magdalene, Maggie Bish. Uh, Her older siblings are Heather and John, Jr., And she had just taken over John Jr.'s position at the lifeguard at Commons Pond. In fact, uh, John Jr. actually trained her for a few days at the pond. And on June 26, 2000, when Maggie and Molly drove to the pond together, Maggie observed a boxy-type white vehicle parked in the parking lot of the pond, And sitting in that vehicle was a gentleman uh, who was described as being Caucasian between 45 and 55 years of age with salt and pepper hair, dark eyes, and he was smoking a cigarette. Um, He also had a mustache, but the way he was smoking his cigarette was very unusual for a man. It was very low uh, between his fingers and with straight fingers, and this man appeared to be unduly fixated on Molly to the point where Molly's mother Maggie became concerned and actually got out of the vehicle and went with Molly to the beach uh, where she was setting up her belongings for that day and Maggie made a comment to Molly saying how beautiful the pond was uh, but she didn't realize that there would be so many men around and Molly was 16 years old, and so she just laughed nonchalantly as any teenager would and kind of brushed her mother's worries off. But that night, uh, John and Maggie did have a conversation with Molly about safety at the pond, and her father gave her a coubaton stick to use to defend herself. But the next morning when they arrived at the pond, um, it was a Tuesday morning, Uh, They arrived shortly before 10 o'clock in the morning, and there was no white car present, or so it appeared at the time. And the only person who was there um, was a gentleman from the town who was delivering sand for the beach because it was the first day of swimming lessons that Molly was to supervise. And within um, less than a 15-minute window, molly bish was taken from her lifeguarding post and all that remained of her on the beach were her sandals with a poland springs water bottle in one of the heels her beach chair her towel that was draped over the back of the chair her two-way radio to communicate with the police department and her whistle wrapped around the arm of her chair And the most odd fact about the crime scene was that Molly's first aid kit was open, but there was no Molly. And the story of how she disappeared. Jack, would you like to talk about when you were called in? Um,
3: I was assigned as a supervisor in the crime scene services for the Massachusetts State Police uh, covering the four western counties of the Commonwealth and it was later in the afternoon that we actually got called in Um, the area was covered by the crime scene services section um, located at Devons, which covered central massachusetts and when they realized that this was going to be a very um, large endeavor um, we were called in and uh to basically assist them and uh, myself and and another um officer from my office went out to assist the uh the ones uh, from the central mass that were actually processing the scene at that particular time, uh, but it was several hours after the initial um, disappearance. Um, at first, uh, local authorities uh, really didn't suspect that this was an abduction. I believe that they thought that um, it might, might have been a drowning um, or a, or possibly a, a walk-off uh, type of runaway type of situation. Uh, so they really weren't um, focusing on preserving the scene at that particular time, but once uh, time went by and it became obvious that um, something else was going on, um, that's when they basically called in the state police to to assist.
1: So
2: the search went on for for Molly uh, for almost three years, almost three years, and the Massachusetts State Police and numerous other agencies put everything that they had into that search for molly because her one of the factors i believe her father john at the time was a probation officer uh, in the state and his connection with law enforcement was very close and so law enforcement viewed this as one of their own had gone missing and finally in 2003 um uh, The Massachusetts State Police had been pursuing all options in the investigation right up until the very end, which is certainly appropriate, but one of those considerations was the fact that Molly had run away, and it was discovered that the night before Molly disappeared, she had made a phone call to a friend in Florida, and they determined that would be a logical place for her to run to, and they had two unrelated witnesses call in to the Massachusetts State Police and say that they had seen Molly in Florida. So on May 16th of 2003, the Massachusetts State Police were preparing to deploy two troopers down to Florida to investigate this lead. When a local hunter named Ricky Boudreaux and a retired police officer named Timothy McGuigan reported to the Massachusetts State Police that they had found an item of clothing consistent with the blue and white bathing suit that Molly had last been seen wearing at the pond, approximately five miles from where she was taken in a location known as Whiskey Hill. And when they made that call, the State Police responded um, and Jack, perhaps you can talk a little bit about the thoroughness of the search.
3: When the uh, state police received the call, they uh, basically unleashed all resources that they had available. It was an extensive search, and at some point they actually found skeletal remains, um, and um, at which point, you know, a major crime scene uh, was uh, declared. Um, This area where Amali's remains were found is actually a very um, complex jurisdictional nightmare. It's, it's basically where three towns come together. Uh, Warren, where Molly went missing from, um, is actually in Worcester County. Um, the town of Ware um, is in Hampshire County and the town of Palmer is in Hampden County. And she, her remains are actually located in Palmer. Uh, however, in Massachusetts, according to statute, a homicide is um, under the direction of the district attorney of jurisdiction. They're in charge of the investigation. Uh, So uh, when her remains were actually found, uh, the fact that Worcester County uh, had started this investigation, they basically continued uh, the investigation even though her remains were actually found at Hamden County. And um, this was a major scene, um, a major response. Once again, my office in Western Massachusetts received the call Uh, that they needed assistance in processing this scene. Um, It it was um, uh, very, very in-depth over several days. Um, I I was sending two troopers a day to assist the Central Mass uh, team, and the area where the remains were found was meticulously processed uh, right down. uh, Several layers of earth were actually removed. um, Every layer of Mm-hmm. Uh, ground cover, uh, fallen leaves, everything was was taken right down to the point where very very small pieces of evidence were found um, at that particular location.
0: John, can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Uh, no. So apparently, the the possibility that Molly was a runaway was still in play virtually up until the the discovery of the remains uh and even though that was still out there did did you as an investigator or your team did did anybody have a gut feeling if you know even though uh, it was not conclusive but after that amount of time had passed were, were you folks getting a gut feeling that maybe it was not a runaway that it was more likely foul play or wasn't there any feeling like that
3: Yeah, I really can't speak for anyone else. Again, um, I really didn't cover this particular area, nor did the troopers assigned to my office. We were just called in to assist, um, and we basically processed crime scenes. Uh, The actual investigation was done by detectives from the state police that were assigned to the Worcester County uh, District Attorney's Office. And, um, you know, for them, you know, to go out and do the interviews, collect the uh, evidence and everything, I wasn't actually privy to. Um, anything outside the evidence that I actually dealt with that particular time. So I really can't speak to that, unfortunately.
0: Okay. It's got to be, I'm just uh, thinking it, you know, when people uh, are involved in this kind of a case for this amount of time, um, I suspect that frustration builds too in the investigators, you know, uh, of trying to get answers and it, 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 from that perspective, I imagine it was very frustrating to go on and on, uh, you know, month after month with no answers uh, that had to be kind of maddening to the, uh, to the people doing the investigation, I would think.
3: Absolutely. Um, There are several cases, you know, that I worked on uh, during my tenure as a crime scene investigator that remain unsolved. Uh, Those uh, to this day, uh, haunt us, and um, you know, I know that in speaking with other colleagues, uh, you know, across the Commonwealth, um, you know, that are involved in, in homicide investigations, that you know, most investigators take these cases very, very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. Uh, we want you know, justice uh, for the victim. We want to make sure that the you know, the proper suspects are identified and, and they're held accountable, um, while absolutely, you know, declaring. Um, You know, no involvement for anyone that had nothing to do with it, I think, is equally important um, out there. And, you know, over time, suspects are named, um, but if those suspects are cleared, then, you know, that should be made public as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And with, um, you know, with Molly's case, there has been several suspects that have been publicly identified um, over time. And I know that the investigators that, you know, I dealt with and everything, you know, hold this case very close to heart. Um, you know, for the amount of time and resources Mm -hmm. that have actually been put Mm -hmm. into this case because, you know, several times over the years I've seen, you know, the full um, resources of the Massachusetts State Police uh, being put forward um, Mm -hmm. in this particular case.
2: And, Denny, also to speak to that, uh, you know, we recently spoke with one of the former investigators on Molly's case, um, and a lovely gentleman, and he actually kept a button, uh, one of Molly's pins. They had pins made for Molly every year with her photo and to commemorate how many years she had been missing. And he kept that button, and it said, the promise to Molly. He kept that in his cruiser. So there were a lot of professionals and investigators
1: that did take this case very seriously. Can we... (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, Denny. Go ahead.
0: Uh, I was just going to say. Uh, so now we have the remains found. We know Molly is not was not a runaway. Um, and then Sarah, you became involved. Uh, I believe around this time, or sometime after that. Mm-hmm. Um, would you explain, uh, you know, how you became involved with the Bish family and so on and so forth?
2: Sure, of course. Um, I was an undergraduate at the time, and I was well into my major, which was the victimology of pedophilia. And when Molly's remains were formally identified on June 9th of 2003, I read an article about it, and I remembered having read about Molly's case when I was a senior in high school, and that was when she had just gone missing. And at that moment when I was reading that article about her remains being found, and I was remembering having read about her in high school, I was touched and compelled. And I felt that since this was what I wanted to do with my life, maybe there was something I could do to help, even if I was only an undergraduate at the time. So at the time, Molly's family had had a website set up and they had a section where you could leave a post or comment and I just left my name and my major and offered whatever assistance I could and I didn't hear anything back for a while I honestly didn't expect to ever hear anything and then on December 3rd of 2003 um, my roommate answered the phone and she said, Sarah, there's a phone call for you. And I said, okay, who is it? And she said, someone named John Fish." And my heart just stopped. Uh, it was Molly's father uh, who was calling me. And he asked me, even though uh, I was a young undergraduate at the time, he said, will you help. Will you help? Will you tell me your thoughts on Molly's case and what happened? And in May of 2004, from May 15th to May 17th, um, John invited me up to Massachusetts to meet the rest of Molly's family and begin working, you know, with them and
1: um,
2: start that process so I was going to college in Washington, D.C., and I drove my little silver bug all the way up to Warren, Massachusetts, and, um, and that's where it began. John took me to the pond, and I felt the pain of that place the raw pain, and the weight, and the sadness, and the brokenness. And there's a little bridge that goes from one end of the park to where the beach is. And John and I walked over that bridge, and there were yellow ribbons tied everywhere for Molly. That was her symbol. And to this day, there are still the original yellow ribbons hanging in some places in Warren. And we walked across that little bridge and John untied one of the yellow ribbons and handed it to me. And he said, we really can't afford to pay you anything, but I hope you always remember Molly. And at that point, there was an understanding between the two of us that I would do whatever I could to find justice for Molly, for his Molly, and that's how it began, and I worked on her case pro bono for nearly 15 years.
0: I sense from your voice and from previous conversations we've had that this case was uh, quite an emotional uh, one for you. Am I correct?
2: Yes, very much so. Um, Writing this book with Jack uh, was a very powerful uh, psychological process Um, in reflecting on all the years that I did work on this, reflecting on all of the persons of interest we looked at. um, what Every case that I work on is emotional to me. But with Molly, I felt the saddest thing about her case was that she was a lifeguard. She was a 16-year-old lifeguard. She was a child. And she was there to protect all the little lives around her. And that she wanted to be a special ed teacher like her mother. She wanted to protect children. And there was no one there to protect her. And then the investigation went so poorly that it, it just... All of it was so wrong in what happened. And the fact that she still doesn't have a voice and she still hasn't gotten justice formally, it's wrong. And there are so many cases like that in Massachusetts, um, quite frankly, because of the way politics work there. And it's abhorrent to me that anyone would politicize the murder of a child to get votes in an election so
1: that's why this case is emotional to me I might, yeah thank you um, circling back to the investigation did you find that in I, I, I picked up that she was considered a runaway did you find that there was a difference in the urgency, so to speak, of that investigation because of the classification of a runaway?
2: Well, they never formally classified Molly as a runaway. And quite frankly, the Massachusetts State Police was handed a disaster when they took over that investigation because no way trying to... Uh, insult or denigrate local law enforcement. I have an enormous amount of respect for all police officers, all good police officers. But the local department in Warren was approximately a six-man department at the time that Molly went missing. And quite frankly, in these rural areas with rural police departments, they don't necessarily have the funding, the manpower, or the training to be able to accurately assess this type of situation. And so what happened in Molly's case, the day she went missing, the parks commissioner uh, was told that she was not at her post. He waited until approximately 11.40, I want to say, to contact the local police department. The local police department then did not contact Molly's mother until approximately one o'clock that afternoon to inform her that her child was missing. And in these particular circumstances, You need behavioral experts readily available or people who are trained in behavioral and crime scene analysis readily available to say this is not a runaway case. Her shoes are here. Her supplies are here. Her first aid kit is open. She didn't go anywhere. One of the first witnesses told Timothy McGuigan, the retired police officer, that she had observed a swath-like pattern on the hill behind the beach indicating that someone might have been dragged. That entire crime scene was not preserved, and it was unintentional. It was the, they were looking everywhere they could think of to look for Molly, but civilians, police officers, everyone was going all over this pond and beach until the Massachusetts State Police got there. But the the real tragedy of this situation is that in all likelihood, by the time the Warren Police Department called Maggie Bish to let her know that Molly was gone, she was statistically most likely already dead you have in these types of situations at most a three-hour time window to find that child alive. And the statistics just decrease from there. And that was the first real tragedy of Molly's investigation going awry was the fact that people didn't recognize that this wasn't runaway case they didn't listen to molly's family when they showed up distraught at the pond saying she never would have left she never would have left her her shoes are here it was the first day she was alone at the pond uh it was the first day of swimming lessons she was nervous about that and on top of that maggie kept telling police officers if she was in the water her shoes would be in there with her because molly never liked to go into the pond without her flip-flops on because the, and i can attest to this personally the bottom of cummins pond is disgusting it's filled with leeches and mucky and it's it's just gross so law enforcement chose not to acknowledge critical victimology information in those first critical hours. And that caused a severe amount of damage to Molly's case.
0: You know, I I can't help but think, uh, you know, talking about the various jurisdictions uh, that got involved and so on, the um, a case I'm quite familiar with about a deceased Fort Drum, New York, uh soldier. Um, there were three different agencies involved in that at various times. It started out as a missing person, which involved the local city police department. And the Army CID treated it as an AWOL soldier. And then when the remains were found, uh, the county sheriff took over. And it was uh, ha- having so many... Uh, hands in the pie uh, there were a lot of problems with that investigation as well Uh, things were missed Uh, evidence Mm -hmm. wasn't preserved Uh, there were some Mm -hmm. gaps uh, because nobody seemed to know what the other party was doing or had done, it was a a poor communication, very very frustrating because like what you're saying about Molly's case once these things happen and uh, uh, the investigation gets off on the wrong foot and then stays on the wrong foot, uh, it's almost impossible in a lot of cases, I think, to recover from that and undo those problems.
2: The bottom line, Denny, if you'll allow me to answer this one, is that you can't turn back the clock, as you said. You can't turn it back. Once that information is lost, it's lost. And one of the most frustrating aspects of Molly's investigation was the lack of transparency from certain offices, and I will include the district attorney's office in this, to acknowledge what agencies were actually involved in Molly's investigation. We've heard things over the years that the FBI had been involved. We heard things that Other state agencies had been involved, but there was no clarity as to which agencies were actually involved in Molly's case. And in Molly's case, they received over 70,000 leads regarding her disappearance, and that is an enormous amount of information for any law enforcement office to handle, and God knows where the rest of those leads went. So it really was a difficult situation
1: what do you what do you have to say to some of and I know this happens everywhere where like you brought up earlier, the smaller agencies or or police departments don't have funding don't have manpower don't have the knowledge and training to possibly handle a case of bigger magnitude and what is it that keeps them from reaching out to other agencies who can come into their into their jurisdiction and help them? I find, you know, over the years I've seen a lot of those cases happen mm-hmm. where there's kind of a territorial thing between mm-hmm. agencies. They either want to get rid of a case and pass it on or they don't mm-hmm. want to let it go and they don't want to ask for help to mm-hmm. come in and you know possibly solve it quicker how do you, you how do you address head, that Delilah,
2: and i'm going to i'm going to let jack take this one
3: it's it's actually something i'm very familiar with. prior to my state service i was actually a local officer in a very small town and basically if we had any um, major case uh, we would immediately uh, contact the state police who basically would tell us, you know, just preserve the scene and we'll be there and it worked out very well. Um, unfortunately, in this particular case, I think um, the first responding um, entities, because it was not only the Warren police, but it was, um, I believe fire personnel and and others um, that showed up, um, you know, didn't have uh, the background or the training to recognize, you know, that this was a crime scene. Um, In Massachusetts, uh, only the major cities have homicide detectives like Boston, Worcester, Springfield, Pittsfield, um, all other um, cities and towns basically rely on the Massachusetts State Police that are assigned to the district attorney's offices uh, to conduct major crime investigations uh, simply because they don't have the resources um, or the training and education to to do that type of investigation. And again, in this particular case, um, she went missing from Ward which was Worcester County but actually was found in Hamden County uh, There is a similar case Holly Paranin, um, that happened uh, a few years earlier where she went missing in Worcester County and her remains were also found in Hamden County um, but that investigation is under the jurisdiction of the Hamden County District Attorney's Office um, why one would be under Worcester um, based on similar circumstances and one would be under Hamden I'm not really sure um, but it is all with, within the jurisdiction of the Massachusetts State Police. However, again, according to Massachusetts statute, the district attorney mm-hmm. is in charge of that investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would depend on those particular offices to share the information with themselves, um, you know, district attorneys. Yeah. And um, whether that happens or not on a regular basis, I'm not really sure because, I, again, I was privy to that. So. I think I'll, I'll refer to Sarah at this point.
2: <laughs> yeah, you, you really hit the nail on the head, Delilah. I, the sad thing for me is that, you know, I've consulted all over the country, and I'm not saying that to say I'm awesome. I'm just saying it's a fact. I've consulted all over the country. And all of the law enforcement agencies I consulted for were progressive enough to believe that it is helpful to have outside credentialed experts assist you in these investigations, experts who have spent their entire lives basically studying this type of criminal behavior and studying behavior of victims Mm -hmm. and how that can be an enormous asset to an investigation. But for some reason, the only state I have ever had To be aggressive in, I guess, would be the right word to use, is Massachusetts. Uh, There was, it it did not matter what county I was working with a family in, the district attorneys in those counties did not want to share information with families. They didn't have to share information with me. They're not legally obligated to do that, but they are obligated to share information with families under the Massachusetts Victims Bill of Rights. They refused to do that. In one particular case, a first assistant district attorney uh, in another part of the state yelled at a victim's sister that they were looking to charge her With something, they were looking to charge her with obstruction of justice because she was asking for clarity and information about what happened to her baby sister 40 years ago, and they treated her like that. So,
1: again, I hear stories like this every day with you know, with mm -hmm. missing persons cases that, uh. You know, we always we always advise families to create a good relationship with their detectives and and the Absolutely. agency itself. And they, a lot of them do. Some of them don't, but you know, most yeah. of them follow that direction if they have the the proper advocacy. And still, run across those brick walls where they. I don't know if releasing information is something that is across the board and I, I know it's been very difficult for a lot of families to get any information whatsoever on the status mm-hmm. of their case mm-hmm. other than, oh, mm-hmm. well, we're still looking into it. And that's just not satisfying. I mean, no, these families it's, it's want to acceptable. see come Right. It's, it's,
2: just, it's not just not acceptable. Awful. And in Molly's case, Molly's family For the first two weeks that Molly was missing, they were sequestered in their home by law enforcement. They were told, don't to the media, don't talk to them, because the perp could get angry and he could hurt Molly. And when I became involved, Maggie sat there crying and said to me, I just keep thinking, what if he had her for two weeks? What if he had her for two weeks and we sat here and we did nothing? And they didn't even get a victim advocate from the district attorney's office until Molly's remains had been found. So they were essentially kept in the dark for almost three years. And during my tenure with working with them, the communication was not much better. And
1: it was shameful. Again, another project for the Transparency Project. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Um, Indeed. Because transparency
2: is the issue. Transparency is the issue. At least give these families the truth of what you know. And if they've been eliminated as suspects, if all of that has happened, then give them that information. So.
0: You know, I was thinking about what John mentioned about uh, when he worked for a, a small police agency in Massachusetts and how if there was a, a major crime, uh, they would immediately request the assistance or turn it over to the state police who had the, the manpower and the resources and expertise uh, to handle the case. And the, the job of the, the small agency would be to hold the fort, preserve the scene, do traffic control or whatever until the state police could uh, could respond and I worked for a small uh, sheriff's department in central New York and we were in the same situation as John described small agency. We didn't have access to lab services or that type of thing. We, we were very limited in what we could handle. And we immediately, if there was a major crime, uh, called our state police, uh, New York state police to come in. Um, However, a lot of times now, I found, and I, I don't know about Massachusetts, but in New York, uh, if a if a survivor or the victim uh, of, of the crime is not satisfied with the way the particular agency handling the case is doing the investigation or what they have done uh, or how they are proceeding, and they want to contact. In other words, if it was a a township, for example, then they they would want to go to the next up with jurisdiction like the county sheriff. And if it was county, then go to the state police or whoever would have jurisdiction. And um, the the agencies in New York anyway, are very reluctant unless you can come in and prove some type of criminal activity or malfeasance. Um, The big brother does not want to come in and take over a case, even though they might have jurisdiction. The state police, obviously, are, uh, can handle anything in the state, but uh, but they're very reluctant unless the handling agency invites them in. Uh, politically, they they want to be invited in by the, say the county or the township or whatever uh, to get involved in the case. So that's that's a very frustrating thing also for uh, victims or the survivors of victims if, if if they think their case has been or is being mishandled. Uh, it, it's very difficult to get any action uh, to try to get around that. Um, maybe Massachusetts is the same way. It probably is. But um, the other thing I'd, I'd like to mention now, and I, I don't want to get off into the political weeds too far, but I think it's appropriate to bring this up. We we're talking about reliance, possibly more reliance by some of the police agencies on outside on civilian assistance to, uh, and with what's going on now with the defund police movement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if the people don't have the resources and training now to handle these cases, what in the world are they right. going to do with cut budgets? Right. And would they have to rely more on outsiders and would they be willing to? I know you have turf battles and, uh, you know, turf protection and and people don't want somebody looking over their right. shoulder, especially in some cases a civilian you know to the command them right. and, and review their works. So I, I don't. I don't know what the answer is, but it scares the hell out of me.
3: Denny, Sarah, and I have talked about this a lot over the last few weeks. Um, you know, with all this going on about police reform, and again, my. Um, Ten years in academia was in forensic science, and as a crime scene investigator, you know I went to numerous uh, you know conferences at, with forensic science groups, and only a handful I could probably count them on one hand were were law enforcement. The rest of them were civilians that worked in crime labs. And something similar happened back um, in the middle of the early 2000s in uh, 2009. The National Academy of Sciences came out with a report, which was basically a congressional mandate for them to do a study. Um, and it's sometimes referred to the, as the NAS report, um, but it, the actual title is Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States A Path Forward. And basically, they looked at every aspect of the forensic sciences, um, you know, all the different disciplines from pattern evidence of blood stains, fingerprints, uh, tire and foot tracks, uh, ballistics arson, explosives, drug analysis, and, of course, DNA. And they basically came up with um, looking at DNA where they can, you know, we've mapped out the human genome. We know the, the, the percentages of and the likelihood that a DNA sample can statistically be attributed to a particular individual um, with a scientific accuracy, um, you know, a scientific degree of accuracy. And as a result of that study, they actually referred to um, a a summary um, that they came up with, which basically said what we need to do is we need to increase funding Mm -hmm. uh, for the forensic sciences. We need to increase um, training. Um, They recommended standardized uh, reporting uh, across the disciplines, in other words, using similar terminology, uh, to the point where the National Institute of Science um, and Technology, um, NIST, is actually overseeing the implementation of this report into the forensic sciences. Um, And one of the the key things in there was they actually said that it should be an objective operation. In other words, Mm -hmm. a lot of the crime labs are connected with law enforcement. For example, in (laughs) Massachusetts, the Massachusetts crime lab, the forensic science technology center is actually part of the state police. Um, And this report was highly critical of anything like that, saying that, Evidence is objective. Um, it should not be subjective at all. Um, we need to come up with standards, especially for like the pattern evidences. Um, you know, it's a subjective call to, you know, basically identify a fingerprint to a particular individual based on the examiner's uh, experience. Um, but what it also did was it basically said we need to separate these, they should have a separate budget and they should ap- actually operate independently. And so with all of this reform, with policing going on, uh, again, I am, you know, I was a law enforcement officer. I worked in some uh, major cases. Um, I think that we're going about this the wrong way. And, uh, you know, this is a knee jerk reaction, unfortunately, um, where they're not looking at this, but we should be increasing funding, getting more officers assigned to cold cases, Mm -hmm. because I know what it's like to be Mm -hmm. working on a homicide Um, and within 24 hours, you get another one.
2: Um,
3: So, and then, you know, you might get another one a couple days after that. So these, you know, things just keep on compounding. Um, You need to fund the personnel so that they have adequate resources to investigate these cases. You have to have additional training uh, for the investigators um, to to run a dual investigation. You know, is it a a homicide or, or an abduction, or is this a runaway? run both types of investigations. You need the personnel to do that. Um, You need experts coming in. Uh, The forensic sciences is very, very uh, specific as to what um, people do. You know, I was a pattern evidence uh, analyst. I looked at bloodstains. I looked at, you know, fingerprint patterns. I looked at tire tracks and footwear. Um, I wasn't a ballistician. I wasn't a drug um, analyst. I wasn't a DNA expert. And what you need is you need those types of people to are coming in and looking at the evidence from these cold cases and saying, how has technology progressed to the point where um, maybe we can get some evidence that was previously hidden? And, um, you know, an investigator, a sworn law enforcement officer doesn't have the training, education, or background to do that. I learned so much uh, from my colleagues in the forensic sciences. Uh, specifically, I was very involved in the Northeastern Association of Forensic Scientists, which was New England, Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. Um, and, you know, some of these individuals that they were they were the top of the game, they, they knew what to look for um, based on their expertise. And we need to do that with all of these cold cases. We need a mm-hmm. set of fresh eyes uh, mm-hmm. coming in and analyzing the evidence and saying, is there something now that we can do, or is there something that was overlooked years ago um, that now we can, we can go forward and try to get some results um, from the evidence that has been you know sitting here for years?
2: And also just to follow up on that, Jack, uh, you know, when I researched this um, for this book, the average salary for a police officer as of May 2020 is $56,000 a year which is also the same amount I made as a full-time college professor, which is a little disturbing as well. But you that is an abysmal number. And in Massachusetts, they actually there was a piece of legislation called the Quinn Bill, and it incentivized further education for law enforcement, and that bill was defunded years ago it was defunded years ago and so i agree fully with jack in that we defunding the police we i feel and this is just my personal opinion as a human society are not evolved enough to exist in a lawless society or a society without accountability for your actions what we need to do is recognize police officers for the professionals that they are, and by doing that, pay them more and require more education. They need the education. When I consulted in the Netherlands, for example, the detectives there, before they were even allowed to commence a homicide investigation, they were required to do what's called a literature review which is to examine all previous types of related crimes, the scholarly research that has been done on those crimes and the behaviors involved, and then they could begin their investigation. But they had to educate themselves first, and their solve rate is in the 90th percentile, where ours
1: is sitting somewhere in the low 60s. It's abysmal. Well, and another another sector is the volunteer sector, where you have maybe retired experts uh, that could actually get give their expertise, and through nonprofits trying mm-hmm. to get funding for nonprofits, it's it's you can't do a job for, if, if you're in a nonprofit because you're constantly no. fundraising. So it's no, it's, it's you, a it's a revolving honest, door. It's, it makes you dizzy. It is
2: it is delilah it is and that is one of the most challenging aspects of all of this is where is the money going to come from but one thing i can say is that i supported myself by teaching uh, and writing and things like that that allowed me to never charge a single family or law enforcement agency for work on a case, aside from perhaps travel expenses and lodging. And a lot of our colleagues, mine and Jack's colleagues, in the field of forensic science and criminal justice, and these experts who are available to help, won't touch a case unless they get a $5,000 retainer, a $10,000 retainer. If families and law enforcement had that kind of money, those cases wouldn't be cold. So people in our field need to step back and say, you know what, we have expertise that we can contribute and we support ourselves in different ways so we can afford maybe to look at some cases pro bono. Jack and I do pro bono consultations still with law enforcement and it's extremely productive. But people in our field also need to do their part and say, We'll do this at a reduced cost or no cost until the police can get the funding that they need to actually address the problems that are going on in this system.
0: Um, you know, we almost could do another show just addressing these issues we're talking about now. Uh, maybe we should yeah. should schedule one at some point um, We're our time's almost up here. And I'd like to talk a little bit uh, for a couple of minutes about the book would you would you tell us when uh, you decided to write it and so forth and where people can find the book
2: well it's interesting i i never intended to write this book i never wanted to write about molly or my involvement in her case uh and not because i didn't think it was critically important but because it is it is such a private story and it was also a you know a difficult certainly not nearly as difficult as molly's family's journey but it was a difficult journey for me as well and so i never planned on writing this but um a couple months ago uh i i just started writing because i couldn't keep quiet any longer. I was, I write in the book, I was afraid for years of telling this story, years, because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I couldn't stay silent any longer people. People are, let me think of the way to say this, as a society, we are at a critical juncture in our evolvement um, and our evolution. And people need to decide which way we're gonna go. Are we gonna go down for dividing our country and not standing together and defunding police? Or are we gonna evolve towards a better system of addressing these types of investigations? And I wanted to do my part to push for that. We need to get to a better place. We have to because we have no other alternative. And so that's why I decided to write this book because the system, the criminal justice system is inherently broken on so many different levels. And cold cases is just a tiny piece of it. But... The methodology that Jack and I and my co-author James Adcock use in our cold case analysis, it's a three-pronged scientifically proven model where we examine informational, behavioral, and physical evidence. And I believe there needs to be national protocols for that. Um, but again, as you said, that's another show. So. The book uh, can be found on Amazon. Uh, it can be also purchased through um, my wonderful publisher's website, Alley Blue Media. And I, I would so appreciate anyone reading this, uh, you know, to to take these suggestions or to at least reflect on them. And consider changing the way they work, because if we don't, these cases are going to keep proliferating. We have almost three hundred thousand unsolved murders in this country. we have over forty thousand unidentified bodies in morgues it's unacceptable, and so that's why I wrote this
1: book with Jack
0: um. I just want to tell you as we we're signing out here, we only get a few seconds left that, uh, this show will be available through the blog talk radio archives within about a half hour. So anyone who didn't, uh, wasn't able to listen to it uh, with us live, will be able to play it back. And also, uh, uh, Sarah and John, if you want, you can download it. Uh, the program, the, the show, uh, you know, if you want to, uh, use the uh, your interview here for any other purpose for promotion uh you're more than welcome to do that uh i want to thank you both so much for being with us today and sharing molly's story and thanks to our audience for listening until next time stay healthy and stay safe
2: thank you so much jenny and delilah